Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Lineout's first proper podcast. I know I put uh, something out a few days ago, but that was more just an intro to uh, the podcast and what it's about and what we're going to be trying to do and the kind of things we're going to be talking about over the next couple of months. But this is the first official podcast, and uh, we're actually going to divide this into two. Uh, this first podcast will be about Australia and their trials and tribulations in the Trans-Tasman Super Rugby Competition as well as the uh, new red card ruling, which also had a bit of an impact on last weekend's Super Rugby proceedings. The second podcast uh, will be a little bit shorter than this. We'll be looking at uh, Toronto's misfortunes against the Free Jacks last weekend and uh, what that means for them going ahead as they approach the final run to the end of the season. So without any further ado, let's get straight into it and uh, focus on Australia and the troubles in the Super Rugby Trans-Tasman competition. So first of all, you might be saying, well, hang on, the Reds won last weekend. What's the big deal? Well, it is a big, a bit of a big deal because uh, prior to round three, uh, no Australian side had won a game. Admittedly, the, the Brumbies had come a little bit close uh, against the Crusaders in round one. But the, still, it was uh, uh, just basically... Two rounds in, no wins. A third round in, four losses, one win. That win obviously coming from the Reds. So they played 15 games, and they've managed to win one of them. Not a great picture. And of that win that happened last weekend, uh, as much needed as it was, how much of a win really was it? And uh, how much of a shot in the arm was it for Australian sides struggling to match up to their New Zealand counterparts? The debate already begins with, would the Reds have won that match if if the Chiefs uh, fly half and star playmaker Damian McKenzie had played a full game uh, and not been sent off with a red card? Let's, let's be honest and brutally frank, it's debatable. Uh, New Zealand teams finished better than any other sides on the planet. And that was plain to see as, as the Chiefs came storming back into that game and, and almost took it at the death, uh, especially once they were back to 15 men in the final quarter. I think the telling image of what's going on in, in Australian rugby uh, last weekend was at the end of the game, uh, I can't remember if it was on the highlights reel or, or just in the full replay of the game, uh, and the full replay obviously is available on uh, TSN and you can go to the Sanzar site for the replays or head over to uh, the lineout blog, rugbylineout.com and the TV page. And there's the highlights there as well. But um, like I say, I think the most telling image in that match was once the final whistle had blown and, you know, you had the Reds players cavorting around the pitch like they just won the World Cup. And all credit to them. You know, that was an important win and they needed that win and, and you know, Beating the Chiefs is, is is no mean achievement. They deserve to celebrate. But you can see that that euphoria was definitely not happening in, in the coach's box. Uh, Brad Thorne's face kind of said it all. It's like, okay, well, we got the win, but uh, boy, we got a lot of work to do. So, you know, he realized perhaps way more than the team that that one came so close to, to almost getting away from them. And for large chunks of that second half, it dramatically got away from them. I mean, I think the most telling statistic in that match was uh, if you go to missed tackles, the Reds missed 50 tackles. The Chiefs 
only missed 30. So they, you know, the Reds missed almost twice as many tackles as the Chiefs, and the Chiefs at one point only had 13 men. So, you know, to throw away a 30-point lead and let in five tries in the space of 25 minutes, which literally translates to a try scored every five minutes, that's just, that's just not excusable at this level. Um, the influence of, of the red card issue to Damien McKenzie, uh, you know, the, the chief star fly half, you know, had he been on the field for more than the initial 20 minutes, would it have been a whitewash in the chief's favor? It's hard to argue against that when you watched how badly the Reds imploded in the second half. Um, on the subject of McKenzie's red card, uh, we're going to talk about red cards in the second part of this podcast. But, um, you know, I, I, while I don't sympathize particularly or take much that, that former Wallaby coach Michael Chega has to say with, with much credence, I I could understand at halftime in the commentary box when he, the point he was trying to make, because uh, he, you know, he basically thought the red card was unjustified. I disagree with that, but I think what the point he was trying to make was bigger than that is that Australian sides, given the kind of crisis they're going through right now, need to be able to be seen to me- measuring up to the best New Zealand has to offer. And the best New Zealand has to offer in that match would have had Damian McKenzie on the pitch for the Chiefs. So, yeah, sure, they beat the Chiefs, but, um, you know, to, to really make that victory count in a way and show how the Reds are measuring up, they almost kind of needed McKenzie to be on the pitch. But like I say, I think the red card was justified and he had to go, but more on that in a minute. But let's face it, you know, after last weekend and that sort of last last gasp win, things aren't going to get any better for the Reds this weekend. I mean, they're going to face the Blues, and the Blues are on fire right now. Uh, and, you know, the, the kind of brain farts that were going on in the Reds the Reds camp in the second half, the, the, the Blues will take them to pieces for, for things like that. The Brumbies, the second-place team in the Super Rugby Australian camp competition, they're not faring any better either. Um, you know, they got out their trans-Tasman campaign off to a promising start against the Crusaders. Uh, I thought they were actually quite unlucky to lose that game. But the point is, they, they lost that game um, and they went on to lose the next two. And uh, you know, they've got to face the Hurricanes this weekend. And the Hurricanes, like the Blues, are on fire and are, are packing some world-class players. So it's it's not going to get any easier for anyone Uh on the, on the Australian side of things. So what is going on? Why, why perhaps are Australian sides having such difficulty? I think perhaps in an attempt to, uh, you know, solidify a, an audience for rugby union in Australia, which has become more and more under threat as each year goes by, by the continuing and growing success of, uh, you know, well-established sports like Aussie rules football and rugby league, you know, rugby union still has to take a backseat to both of those sports. Um, but in an attempt to make it more, I guess, visibly, a more visibly attractive product, you know, the emphasis has been on really on, you know, lots of attacking rugby, lots of tries, you know, real showpiece showcase entertainment type stuff. 
Um, and that's all very well and great, and it's a great product to watch, but it's only a great product if you're able to defend against that same uh, style of rugby. And that is something right now that Australian sides seem incapable of doing. So yeah, sure, they can run in tries from all corners of the park, but they can't defend against a team doing the same thing to them. Um, and as a result, it, it kind of makes the whole exercise kind of pointless. Um, and, you know, fans don't want to watch that either. You know, they don't want to be see, see their teams having been run rings around by opposing sides, particularly Kiwi sides, given the, the history of the rivalry between the two countries. So that's frustrating. for If you're an Australian fan, that must be deeply frustrating, and I don't think it's, it's doing much for growing the game in Australia. And you look at it, Australian teams, for the most part, just don't seem to uh, have any kind of coherent defensive structures. And, you know, with, with France arriving next month to play the Wallabies, I'm sure that the Wallaby coach, Dave Rennie, is looking on at all of this with a, with a growing sense of alarm. You know, he's a smart guy. Um, you could see that um, he, you know, he made some real improvements with Australia last year, the rugby championship, and, and addressed some of these failings. But he's still got his work cut out for him. I think one of the most telling statistics uh, so far in the competition is if you look at uh, the New Zealand sides versus the Australian sides. The Australian sides have scored 45 tries. It's, you know, that's respectable. But they've let in 92. And here's the irony. New Zealand has exactly the same numbers, but they're just in reverse. New Zealand's let in 42 tries, but they've scored 92. So, you know, how do you, how do you play against that? Um, you know, Australia does have a player in the top 10 try scoring statistics. That's uh, Suliasi Vunivalu of the Reds. Um, and in the top point scores, top 10 point scores overall, they have two players, uh, Vunivalu for the Reds and also James O'Connor, uh, the Reds fly half. And let's face it, Vunivalu is world-class. I mean, some of the tries he scored last weekend against the Chiefs, absolutely spectacular and well worth the price of admission. But, you know, once again, it's great having that, but if you can't defend because New Zealand is going to bring exactly the same thing back to you, then it's it once again it becomes a bit of a moot point. Also, if you watch any of the highlights reels of the first three rounds of Super Rugby Transmet Trans Tasman, it's interesting. You notice that about half of the tries scored by New Zealand sides in any match start deep within their own half, often within their own twenty-two. You know, that means they are keeping the ball alive for a good 70 meters and getting points out of it. Sure, you know, by the time it gets to an Australian side's 22, there's usually some last-ditch defense and the forwards arrive and slow the ball down, but it doesn't really paint a particularly pretty picture of Australian defenses. It's basically saying that, you know, they're leaving a lot of real estate out there unattended. And opposition sides, these Kiwi opposition sides are, are making full advantage of it and getting points out of it. Statistics overall, it's showing that Australian sides are lagging way behind their Kiwi counterparts in terms of success rates in all aspects of the game. Uh, possibly the only thing that Australian teams could get excited about is the fact that the Brumbies are, I've got the highest success rate in terms of lineouts and the Waratahs seem to be the team uh, leading the stats on carries made. But, you know, in both of those aspects, if you're not, 
if you're not turning that success into points, once again, it's how much use is it? Uh, it's, it all becomes kind of null and void. So there's two rounds left um, in the competition before the final. And I think it's safe to say that you're not going to see an Australian side getting their hands on the silverware. It's beyond their reach at this stage. And, uh, you know, they and Coach Rennie uh, for the Wallabies looking on need to find some defensive answers and they need to find them quickly. I think the point for the Australian teams and the remainder of the competition is is not to be out there trying attractive rugby, but uh, but which is ultimately pointless in the long run if it's not getting you the results, uh, because there's no defensive structures to to complement or match it. So I would say forget chasing points for the last two rounds, which aren't going to do anything for you. Forget all about your bonus points and your points differences. Just attempt to win some games by simply keeping the opposition out of your own 22 and even better, keeping them out of your own half. It's not going to be a thrilling spectacle for us as fans to watch, but it's much needed to get Australian rugby back on track. All of this may sound like I'm a little bit uh, disparaging of Australian rugby. Uh, I'm not. It's it's just a genuine concern for the game. Um, I have a huge amount of respect for Australian rugby and always have done. And, you know, right now there's some world-class players in, in what they've got to work with, uh, especially in the backs. Um, the Reds' Hunter Paisami, uh, top class. Filippo Dalgunu, I've already mentioned Vunivalu. Um, the Brumbies, Tom Banks and Ire Simone. Uh, the Waratahs, Jack Maddox. But if this talent isn't linked to a defensive platform, it doesn't matter how many tries they can run in. Once again, it just becomes a moot point. And I think it's especially sad when you consider the pedigree of Australian backs and Australian rugby in general. I mean, the 90s generation, one of the best there ever was. And in terms of backs, guys like Michael Lina, Joe Roth, Tim Horan, uh, more recently Sterling Mortlock, all of these guys were outrageously talented, but they were also solid defensively. Um, so, you know, strong in attack, strong in defense. You know, you have to juxtapose that against players like... Uh, David Campesi and he who must not be named at the moment, a.k.a. Israel Folau. Uh, you know, those guys were great, great attacking players, but defense, weak at the best of times, and uh, at, in some, on some occasions just a downright joke. Um, and, you know, you see that a little bit in a, in a player, a modern-day player like Dane Haylock Petty. I mean, I love watching the guy on attack. He's just, he's just excitement great player, huge respect for him in attack, but defensively, he often just doesn't cut the mustard. You know, the more recent generation, you know, players like Drew Mitchell uh, and Adam Ashley Cooper. I mean, sadly, Drew Mitchell's retired, uh, and Adam Ashley Cooper's plying his trade very successfully with the LA Gil Giltinis, and I think that's a big part of their success right now in Major League Rugby. Um. And also guys like, you know, Reese Hodge, who unfortunately is out injured right now, but he should be available for the Wallabies test against France. You know, they're, they're the guys who, who, who have shown that Australia can provide that missing link in, in defense as well as excelling in attack. But sadly, they seem very far, few and far between these days. In short, it's time for a plan. And uh, a new generation of Australians to uh, Australian players to step up to the plate and plug that gaping defensive hole. 
So that brings us on to the subject of red cards. And as you saw in the Chiefs-Reds game last weekend, it, uh, it proved a little bit of a hot debate. As you know, the World Rugby right now is implementing uh, some experimental rules with the red card, which most likely I would imagine will be uh, fully implemented cup the test, test season and uh, the rugby championship and the November internationals. So the new red card, red card system, or some are calling it an orange card system, but it's a red card. Uh, the way that works is if a player is issued a red card, then they're out for the rest of the match. That means their game is over. But after a 20-minute period, uh, that team is allowed to put another player on uh, to restore their team back to 15 men. As in the past, you know, red card, you're down to 14 men for the remainder of the match. They can't bring the player who has got the red card back on, but they can, after 20 minutes, put another player on to replace him. So why have World Rugby uh, implemented this rule, do we think? Well, I think its main reason, and I think it's it's a sound it's a it's sound reasoning, is um, they're trying to balance the debate around that you often get, particularly at the test level. Oh well, you know the team only that team only won because you know they had the benefit of playing with fifteen men against a team that only had fourteen. And I think if you look back to the recent Six Nations, there's your case in point. Um, you know. Uh, Wales, who no argument whatsoever, they were deserved Six Nations championship uh, champions, and they deserved all their all their wins. Played a great tournament, no questions asked. But their opening two rounds uh, in the first game against Ireland, you saw Ireland's Peter Romani go off uh, early on in the match, and then Ireland having to play with fourteen men for the rest of the game, and uh, Wales having the the full benefit of fifteen men plus their bench. Wales go on to win the game. Um, and I think in that game in particular, it, it it would be hard to argue that they weren't the better team on the day by, by quite a margin. But the second round, I felt there was a lot of debate and it detracted from a deserved Welsh victory, but a very close Welsh victory. Uh, Wales beat Scotland by one point, 25 to 24. And at the 53rd minute, Scotland, Xander Ferguson gets sent off uh, with a red card. And Scotland are down to 14 men. Wales obviously have their full complement. The last 10 minutes, you know, Scotland come charging back. Um, and, you know, they they played all the rugby. Um, and you'd have to argue if they'd had 15 men, like as in this, this current ruling, because after the 73rd minute, Scotland would have been allowed to replace Sander Ferguson with somebody else. Uh, would, would that have changed the outcome? It's a fair question. Uh, I don't think it's a question that we should dwell too much on. Wales won the game, end of argument, and it was close, but they were deserved winners. But I think the debate surrounding the game after that was unfortunate because it, it, it detracted from otherwise, uh, a Welsh victory that, that was deserved. Close, but deserved. So this ruling, this new ruling, and the way they're implementing it, uh, I think is is going to play a huge fact, a huge part in in getting rid of those kind of debates, which I think detract from the spectacle and and the ultimate winners uh, winners rights, if you like, at the end of the game. 
Next question, was Damian McKenzie's red card uh, justified? Like I said earlier, despite Checkers whinging on in the, the commentary box, but, oh, mate, you know, I wouldn't have done that, and, uh, you know, I couldn't help it, it was momentum of the game, and, yeah, no, sorry. Uh, I don't think there was any intent there, but there was contact to the head with force. Uh, I don't think McKenzie did it, like I say, with any intent, but it was unfortunate. And because of the pace that the game is being played at and uh, the level of fitness of players and physicality and so on, risks to head injuries, we all know about, there's been debate about concussion in the game, et cetera, et cetera. All of those risks are magnified. And if they're not, if players aren't coached how to tackle to avoid them, then, you know, we're still going to not address the problem of head injuries and concussions. And that needs to be addressed. So the way we address that is to be stricter in, in the rules pertaining to the tackle. And last weekend, sadly, you know, he didn't lead with the arms. The shoulder goes into the head at speed with force. It wasn't intentional, but it happened. And those are the rules. That's it. You're gone. So was it justified? I would argue yes. Uh, I had no issue with, with the decision. However, what I do have issue with, and I think this is what most of us as fans have issue with, is the fact that the application of that ruling is completely inconsistent at the moment. You know, in one match, McKenzie's charge, a charge like that would be interpreted as nothing more than just an unfortunate uh, byproduct of the, the, of the game and the pace at which it's played. Another would be a yellow card, or as in the case of Saturday, it's a red card. We need consistency. People, fans, parents watching, people who'd like to get their kids involved in the game need to know that there will be a consistent application of the ruling and interpretation of that ruling. In short, contact to the head just is, is not on. And whether it's borderline accidental or intentional, either way, it doesn't matter. The head gets hit, you're gone. So, yeah. It's 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 going to be hard to to adjudicate, but you just you just got to be firm, and more so than anything, players have to. You got to go low when you go into the tackle. It doesn't matter whether you're doing, you know, you're running like a, a bat out of hell, or it's just a slow tackle. It's you go low and you aim low. It doesn't matter. You you get your body positioning right, and coaches need to be drilling that into players at all levels of the game. I mean, I look at my own son, who's eight years old and desperately wants to play rugby. But, you know, I, as a parent, I have concerns about it. Um, I've had a few head knocks in my time, and I know it's an issue and something we need to be concerned about, and we need to stamp it out of our game as much as possible. Never completely remove it. You know, it's a contact sport. It's a physical contact sport. There's always going to be some element in, of risk involved. But like in anything in life, we have to mitigate the, that risk as much as we possibly can. And it's a zero tolerance policy. It's it's training and coaching players to avoid it in the first place. And if it does happen, whether it was intentional or not, it's still zero tolerance. But above all, consistency and application of the ruling is what we need. You now, keep it simple. A hit to the head and you're gone. It's the only way kids and parents are going to feel better about growing the game and getting involved. And... You know, that's, that's what we need to see, plain and simple. So no argument with that. Contentious issue, I agree. 
in our game, it's it, it can be very hard to manage, but it has to be managed. So on that note, I'll sign off for this one and uh, wrap this up and then get the second piece on the Arrows run to uh, the end of the season now. In the meantime, thanks for listening. Hope this is something you find interesting and uh, valuable. And uh, please feel free to ask any questions or send me any comments that, uh, that struck you. And like I say, thanks for listening. Take care, stay safe, and talk to you soon. Cheers.